Good morning, triumphant grace. <laughs> I am truly blessed. And for many reasons, but especially so today because I have, once again, the great honor and privilege to present God's Word to you. But what about you? Are you blessed today? Well, I hope you still feel that way at the end of this message. Because we are going to be talking about a pretty unpopular topic within at least the Western church today. Perhaps you have gotten a clue as to what this message will be about by its title. It's rather unique, isn't it? I never promised you a rose garden. Now, this message and this title has nothing to do with the fact that we're celebrating Triumphant Grace's eight-year anniversary today. This message came and has been prepared for months. And... Uh, it just so happened that today is when I'm going to present it. Anyway, that was also the title of a song by country singer Lynn Anderson in 1970. It was a worldwide hit in that it reached number one on the music charts in multiple countries around the world. So why this title? I did have other thoughts on what to name this message. The Power of Grace was one. The original title was The Purpose of Grace, but I kept coming back to Rose Garden. Why? Was it the Holy Spirit? Perhaps. I sure hope it was. But I also thought it was a very catchy title, one that would grab your attention, and so one that you might remember. But even more importantly, one that was very apropos for the subject we will be addressing here today. I also have to admit that I remember this song from my youth. I haven't heard it for a long time, but knowing his acute memory of such things, I would imagine Pastor Mark could probably still sing it for us. Anyway, the chorus to that hugely popular song went like this. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine... There's got to be a little rain sometimes. That chorus was repeated several times throughout the song. I can still hear Lynn Anderson singing it. And if you were listening to music back in 1970, you probably do too. So why is this song, and especially this chorus, so apropos to this message? You've probably already surmised from the other titles I had considered that the message has to do with grace. And it does. Grace is indeed the answer for so many questions and for the so many problems that we have in this life. Grace is always triumphant. And as we all know so well through this ministry, grace is a person. Grace is Jesus. And if you attend this church or listen to our podcast on an even semi-regular basis, you know that grace is at the very heart, or rather, it is the very heart of this ministry. And since we are so well acquainted with grace, praise God, I will only spend a relatively short amount of time discussing it this morning. But please remember that grace is the very foundation of this message and this series of messages. 
It is the answer to the question so many ask of ourselves so often in the difficult times of our lives. How? How do I get through this? And then after our discussion of grace, we will move directly into the heart of this message, which revolves around the subject of suffering. But before we begin, please keep in mind that I believe that the appropriateness of the title of this song and its chorus to this message is that this is indeed what God is so lovingly speaking to so many of us today, just as he has done to all his children throughout the years. Let me also reassure you that as many of you already know, if you listen to my five-part series on your ultimate destiny, that God has indeed promised us a rose garden, one that is far greater than any rose garden of our imaginations, but one that is still off in our future. And it is, without a doubt, our ultimate destination and our ultimate reality, for we have God's word on it. But that time is not now. It's coming, but it's not here yet, as we all know all too well. Amen? The truth is that God nowhere promises us that kind of life now. In fact, he strongly implies, if not outright promises, that just the opposite is true. That the life we now live will be one of struggles, to put it mildly. Can any of us forget the words of Jesus to his disciples on the night of his betrayal? Some of his very last words that he spoke to them. Here are his words of truth from John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Notice Jesus doesn't say that we might, or that maybe, or that probably we will have tribulation. He says that we will have it. It seems to me that according to Jesus, it's a foregone conclusion. It's inevitable in the world in which we now live. Now that doesn't mean we don't have any recourse, that we must accept it as a governing force for our lives, but we need to accept the fact that tribulation can be right around the corner and ready to appear at a moment's notice. And again, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, right? And we are not going to be spending this time discussing suffering so that you would start to focus or become obsessive about your sufferings. We shouldn't do that any more than we should be focusing or obsessing on our sins. Our focus always needs to be on Jesus and on everything he has done for us, which most importantly includes, but is not limited to, the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and even the ones we haven't committed yet. But that doesn't mean that our sins are unimportant either. And we will briefly look at the problem of sin a little later. But God's forgiveness does mean that he is never, ever punishing us for our sins. That's critical to understand and must be made clear from the start. Jesus was our sin bearer and the wrath of God. His punishment upon sin, our sins and the sins of the whole world, came upon Jesus on that first Good Friday so long ago. 
And because of that, we are now forever forgiven. And that's grace. Amen? And in the same way, we need to understand that our sufferings are not unimportant either. In fact, there is power in sufferings. And we will address that as we move farther along in this series of messages. But now, before we go deeper into this subject, let's have that brief word on grace. So that hopefully, it will remain in the forefront of our hearts and minds as we discuss the unpleasant but important subject of suffering. As many of you already know, the Greek word for grace is charis. And it is used 156 times in the New Testament. It is not an easily defined word, but seems to carry slightly different meanings based on the context of how it is used in each case. It is a word that is almost as big as God himself. Of course, that's an exaggeration, but it serves the point. And if you go to Strong's Concordance or Vine's Dictionary of Greek Words and look up grace, you'll see what I'm talking about. There is no simple two, three, or four word definition for it. It is so much bigger than that. The definition that is most common to my ears is that grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor for us. And that's a good place to start, but there's so much more to grace than that. Wikipedia has this to say about grace. In Western Christian theology, grace is the help given to us by God because God desires us to have it. Not necessarily because of anything we have done to earn it. It is understood by Christians to be a spontaneous gift from God to people. Generous, free, totally unexpected and undeserved, that takes the form of divine favor, love, and clemency, and a share in the divine life of God. It is an attribute of God that is most evident, most manifest in the salvation of sinners. End of quote. All of that is true, of course, and yet hardly all-encompassing. Again, we've also heard the teaching that grace is a person, Jesus Christ. Again, true. But how do you encapsulate who Jesus is in a few words, sentences, or even books? It's impossible, of course. Jesus is so much bigger, grander, more glorious than we could ever verbalize. And so is grace. It is a gift, a blessing, a power, a strength from God that is beyond our capacity to even begin to understand much less to be able to properly describe or appreciate its impact and force in our daily lives. And that is why we aren't even going to try. Rather, we will simply put forth a few scriptures and let them speak as only they can of the power and purpose of grace. We will be much better prepared to tackle today's more difficult topic. Let's begin with one of the most well-known and loved passages on grace. John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace for grace. That's another way of saying that 
Grace is ours as if we were standing under a waterfall. The water there never stops. It just keeps coming, and so it is with grace. If we will simply receive it. And even if we don't acknowledge it or realize its presence, it's still there, all around us, within us. And it's there not because of anything we have done. It's there because of and through Jesus and what He has done. Another very popular scripture verse on grace we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The Greek word here for saved is sozo. And believe it or not, this word does not mean going to heaven when you die. It literally means to deliver and to protect. It also carries the meaning of being physically healed and made whole. Now, I am not saying that you don't go into God's presence immediately upon your death, but I am saying that this is not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about our salvation and deliverance that begins right here and now. And perhaps you might also be wondering what the gift of God is here. Is it grace? Is it faith? Is it being saved? And of course, the simple answer is yes. Of course, it's all of and a gift from God. The next verse we will look at is Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And you could easily translate this last phrase as grace superabounded. In other words, even when and where there is sin, grace is there in a far greater way than we could ever imagine. And listen, grace isn't there in spite of sin. It's there because of sin and of all sin's evil consequences that might come upon us. You could also say that grace superabounds because of all the sufferings that we do go through. And now you know the main point of this message. So let me say it again. Grace superabounds, in part at least, because of all the sufferings we go through. Going on to our next verse on um, grace, Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. As reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So how was Paul able to minister become a minister of Jesus and to then minister the gospel to the Gentiles? By grace. Two more verses to show us the power of grace. Hebrews 13, verses 8 and 9 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. The Greek word for heart here is cardia, and besides the actual physical organ, the word came to stand for man's entire mental and moral activity, both the rational and emotional elements. The Greek word that is translated as established here means to make firm or to make secure. So 
our heart, the essence of who we really are as followers of Jesus, is established, made firm, and secure by grace. This tells me that the more we receive grace upon grace, the more we drink it in, the more secure we become in who we really are. One final verse on grace, and perhaps the key one for today's message, comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Everyone say this with me, please. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a powerful and encouraging verse. Here the Greek word for boldly means to speak freely and plainly without fear and with confidence and cheerful courage. And isn't this how we should always approach our merciful and loving God? And isn't it comforting to know that as we approach the throne of God in prayer or worship, we are drawing near and near to grace itself, or rather to grace himself. That and that alone is all we should ever expect to receive in our relationship with our Heavenly Father and in the answer to all our prayers. And finally, in the last few words of this verse, we find an amazing purpose and power of grace. It's our help in any and all of our times of need. So let me close this section of today's message with a question and an answer. Why grace? Why is grace such a prominent subject of the New Testament? Why have we been talking about it, sharing all these verses on it? The answer, of course, has already been given, but let's restate it because of its importance to this message. Why is grace so super abundantly available to us? Is it because God loves us so much? Well, of course. But that alone doesn't answer the question. The answer, at least from the perspective of this message, is, and you're looking at it right now, is that we need it. Yes, God in His unconditional and unsurpassable love pours out His waterfall of grace upon us because we need it. We needed it yesterday, we need it today, we need it tomorrow, and every day after that. We need it every second of every hour of every day. Can I get an amen? amen? And now that we've established all that, we can move forward and take a semi-in-depth look at the difficult subject of suffering. And along with some of the other purposes of grace that we've just seen in these scriptures, we will now see again why we need grace so much. It's because of all the suffering that is in this world and that is in our own lives. It's absolutely undeniable. And yet there are still many times when perhaps we will overlook, ignore, or possibly even deny many of the sufferings that occur in our daily lives. And in doing that, we not only do not seek for grace to help us in that need, but we are also failing to realize that such denials could be very dangerous for our health both physical and mental. And there's absolutely no reason for it. And a big part of the reason for that denial, at least for me, is that we've grown up within Western Christianity. 
where the prosperity gospel per se has been extremely popular. It has also been called by other names such as name it and claim it. Or to get, you must give and give generously. Of course, money being the chief objective here. And then there is the if only you believe, you'll receive a teaching. Of course, the focus on all these teachings is on being personally blessed. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't truth within all these teachings, but I am saying that I believe these teachings tend to ignore other biblical truths that shouldn't be ignored. One of those truths is sufferings, and even the necessity of sufferings in our lives. We tend to only talk about being so richly blessed. And that being the case, we shouldn't, in our minds anyway, be suffering as well. But what if suffering can be, in many circumstances, one of those blessings? Yet suffering as a biblical topic is generally ignored within the church. And for good reason. It makes us uncomfortable. So we naturally don't want to think about it. And we would rather ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. Well, that may not be a good reason, but it is a reason. However, having been a missionary in Haiti for seven years, I saw and was reminded of the suffering in that country and within God's church there every day. And of course, it is good and commendable that we don't focus on our sufferings and so be overcome by them. Again, we need to keep our focus on Jesus, on grace, and on the truth that is the Word of God. But we shouldn't ignore suffering either, because again, the fact is that suffering is real. It's biblical, and that's why we are addressing it in this series. But if we can recognize it for what it is, we can then turn to the power of grace to see us through it. One final comment about suffering that needs to be made before we look to the Scriptures. In my opinion, too often... Too many of God's people blame themselves when they are undergoing a period of acute suffering. They believe it's their fault. They have done something wrong, and they are now getting what they deserve. What have I ever done to deserve this? Ever heard that phrase? Perhaps have said it yourself? But in the vast majority of cases, that line of thinking is simply false. And as we move into the section of this message where we talk about the different causes of suffering, I'm confident and hopeful that you will see and understand that you are not the cause of all the problems that you may be enduring. And if we can eliminate some of the guilt, shame, or condemnation that we go through when we are suffering, then this message will have been a success. So what does the Bible have to say about suffering? Actually, quite a lot. And there's much for us to learn about it from the Word of God. And as we do, remember to keep in mind our teaching on one of the purposes of grace, which is, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's now begin by looking at just two of the many Greek words that describe some of the different types of suffering that we will probably all endure at some point in our lives. The first Greek word is philipsis, 
And its definition is oppressing, a pressure, anything which burdens. The word is most often translated as tribulation. It can refer to persecution, but most often not. There's another Greek word for persecution. This word is the word that we already use from John 16.33 when Jesus told his disciples in this world, you will have tribulation. It is also used in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. In the context of where the Apostle Paul was visiting the cities where he had previously made disciples and was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. This word is used 45 times in the New Testament. Another form of this word is phlebo, and it means to suffer affliction or to be troubled. It also has reference to sufferings that are due to the pressure of circumstances or the antagonism of persons. It is used another 10 times, such as in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, where Jesus tells us, Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And the final Greek word we will look at today is macrothumia. It is used a total of 25 times and is generally translated as long-suffering. One example of this word we find in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here Paul writes to the Ephesians, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. This word long-suffering is also translated elsewhere as patiently endure. And as we all know, just to be patient can be difficult at times, much less to have to patiently endure some form of suffering that has come upon us and is in no quick hurry to leave. One other important note on this word is that it is a characteristic of our God himself. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And then there's 2 Peter 3, verse 9, where we are told, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Of course, long-suffering is also listed as fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It is as much a part of the fruit as love, joy, peace, and all the rest. And why? Maybe because we live now in a world where suffering can be an everyday occurrence. It may not be 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It may not be major or catastrophic in nature. But it's there. Whether it quickly comes upon us from an outside source or whether it's simply a suffering within us. We've all lost someone who was very near and dear to us. A parent, a sibling, a child, our best friend. Does that type of pain and loss ever really go away completely? I could go on, but the obvious point is that suffering is real. It's simply part of this life. 
That's why some form of suffering is mentioned over 245 times in the New Testament. That's why long-suffering is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And after all, we are the image of our Creator. And He is long-suffering, and so shall we be. Again, suffering is simply guaranteed to be a part of our lives to one degree or another. So why do I bring all this up? Is it to discourage you? No, of course not. In fact, it's just the opposite. But in this world, in the age we live in, where God's kingdom has broken into, but is yet to fully manifest, we need to understand that suffering is not only ever-present, but one could even argue that it is a needed part of our lives. And we shall make that argument in the future. But for now... Let's spend a little time answering the question, why do we suffer? These answers are by no means all-inclusive, but they will give us a good foundation of the many reasons that do exist which bring suffering into our lives. First, we will discuss the reasons that are common to all people everywhere, and then we will end with sufferings that are more specifically common to Christians. So why do we suffer? One reason that we are all surely aware of is that suffering is a consequence of sin. Whether it be our own sin or the sin of others. The unquestioned truth is that sin is bad and it has bad consequences. We cannot ignore or hide from this fact. However, once again, we need to be crystal clear on this truth. God is not judging us or punishing us with suffering because we or others have sinned. We bring this suffering upon ourselves through our sin. Or we could say that sin releases its consequences upon us and others when there is sin. Have you heard the saying, the devil is a bad devil? He only does bad things and he does them all the time? Well, you could apply that expression to sin as well. Sin is bad. It is bad all the time, and it only has bad consequences. There are so many scriptures we could turn to, but for time's sake, we will look at only one. James chapter 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And death is a bad consequence. And I believe this is speaking of more than just physical death. What about the death of health, or of a relationship, or of trust, or love? These are all possible consequences of sin, whether it be ours or someone else's. Now, of course, not all consequences are the same or cause equal amounts of pain. But where sin is, suffering is always not far behind. A second reason for sufferings, and this reason parallels the first, is that we humans tend to live by the flesh. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says about the flesh, Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul tells us, In my flesh nothing good dwells. Now praise God, we as Christians have the Holy Spirit within us to help us combat the flesh, 
to not walk in the flesh. But the fact of the matter is that we all still have this flesh, and sometimes it causes us to suffer. How? I will give you just two ways, but there are many more. One way the flesh causes suffering for us and others is through our pride. Pride, by its very nature, is an internal sin, a sin of the heart and mind, which first causes a suffering to one's own soul, but which, in the long run, if not dealt with, will manifest outwardly in words and actions that will cause others to suffer. Proverbs 13, verse 10 says that by pride comes nothing but strife. And Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction. Now we all know about pride and the suffering it brings. We've probably all experienced it in one way or another in the course of our lives. Another aspect of pride which can also cause great suffering is offense. And the offense I'm talking about here is when we ourselves get offended. It is something we receive into our own lives. To put it succinctly, our feelings got hurt by someone else's actions or words, and so we then put ourselves in a place where we suffer. And the sad thing is that many times, that was not even the intention of the one whom we blame for the offense. We probably all get offended way too often. I know I do. Sometimes by our loved ones, sometimes by people in general, sometimes even by God himself. It happened throughout Jesus' ministry, his family, his hometown, the religious folk, and even many of his own disciples took offense at Jesus and his teaching. It probably caused all of them great internal pain. And I'm just as sure that it must have grieved the heart of Jesus even more. Here is a promise and perhaps a warning from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And I think it would be safe to say blessed are we when we don't take or give offense at all because of all the suffering it can cause both to ourselves and to others. One final comment on pride and suffering. I wonder how many of us refuse to acknowledge their sufferings either to themselves or to others because to them it isn't big enough or important enough. And therefore, since we believe we don't need any help, we don't seek it, either from God or from others. In my opinion, this is both dangerous and foolish. Why should we deny any form of suffering? It doesn't make the suffering go away. We need to acknowledge it for what it is and seek God's grace for our need. And to my knowledge, our Father doesn't have a rating system as to what's important enough for you to bring up to his throne of grace. In fact, I know there isn't. Our Father cares about everything that affects you, no matter how small. So why not go to him with it? Amen? Another reason for why there is so much suffering in our lives is that we do live in a fallen world. Sin, of course, is its ultimate cause, and we've already talked about how sin causes so much suffering in our relationships with each other. But another aspect of living in a fallen world is the suffering that is caused by a fallen nature. Earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, 
pandemics, and the list could go on. How many have lost their lives? How much devastation and suffering have all these caused? There's no way of knowing. And it's not the way it was supposed to be. God created all things at the beginning, and it was all good. It was all very good. What happened? The devastating power of sin. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, tells us of this fallen world. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Nature is indeed in a state of corruption, and no one would ever question the amount of suffering it has caused. One final cause of suffering that affects everyone and is closely related to living in this fallen world is in one word, life. Again, Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2, that there is a time to be born and a time to die, both of which cause some form of suffering. And Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11 says, but time and chance happen to them all. And how about Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5? Or those on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus made it clear here that that disaster had nothing to do with the fault or sin of those who had died. Sometimes we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes you might say it's just our turn. A cold, the flu, a lingering cough, COVID. Why do we suffer their effects when we do? And how many times have we been exposed to sicknesses when we don't suffer from them at all? Besides all this, whenever we set goals in life, we know from first-hand experience that they are not always easy to achieve. Most, if not all the time, sacrifice is required to attain those goals. And sacrifice by its very nature requires some form of suffering. Again, suffering is simply a part of this life. We need to acknowledge that as well as the fact that suffering has no bearing on whether we are blessed or not. We are blessed and God wants to and will continue to bless us because he loves us and because of his great grace. So now we have come to the end of what I'll simply refer to as general suffering. Suffering that is common to all mankind. There are, however, even more causes of suffering. Just what you wanted to hear, right? That will come upon those of us who are now Jesus followers. But that will have to wait till the next time. We will then also talk about what we are to do in the face of suffering. And perhaps we will get to, to what I have already referred to as the need for suffering in our lives. As well as the power that our sufferings can produce or to phrase it a bit differently, how suffering can actually be a blessing both for us and for others. And that is where we are headed in this series. 
to be encouraged by the fact that our sufferings are not necessarily all for naught, but there can be and should be great good that can come out of all those sufferings. So in closing, let me quickly recap a few of the main points that we need to remember as we move forward. First, suffering is real. It is simply part of this life that we now live. Second, we need to recognize all our sufferings, no matter how small they are or how insignificant they may seem to us, for what they truly are, so that we can then turn them over to our loving Father and so find and receive the grace that we need to help us overcome them. Third, we should not fall under condemnation when we are in an acute period of suffering, as if we are responsible for all the suffering that comes upon us. It is true that some of our sins have overt bad consequences that causes suffering. I know this to be a fact because, because I've been in that situation. But we need to remember that many times the suffering in our lives is simply out of our control. And even if it was our fault, we need to do what the Word tells us to, which is to repent, which means to change our mind, go in a different direction. It means going to God, acknowledging our sin, asking for forgiveness, all the while remembering that we are already forgiven by our Father. And then thanking Him for that forgiveness, and then perhaps doing what you can to make restitution to those you have hurt. And finally, keep in remembrance what Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not to be carrying around guilt and shame. As much as possible, we need to let it go. We should not, we cannot let sin or its consequences define us. For that's not who we are. We are the children of the Most High God. We are His image, and we are to be His image out into this world. We need to carry His love and forgiveness to those who so desperately need it. To do that, we need to be free from condemnation and its bondage. We need to remember who we really are, and that's who God says we are. Amen? Fifth, don't focus or obsess on your sufferings, but don't ignore them either. For in doing so, you will not avail yourself of the help, of the grace that's there for your asking. And lastly, if needed, you need to get to the place where you are firmly convinced that God is not ever, ever punishing you with suffering. That's not His nature. His nature is pure love. Study the New Testament Scriptures and the life of Jesus. You will find this to be absolutely true. Look to the cross where you will see God's agape love perfectly revealed in Jesus' sacrifice. Meditate upon it, and you will come to know the unsurpassable love that God has for you and the unsurpassable worth that you have as Jesus paid an unsurpassable price to redeem you and set you free. Remember as well that according to Scripture, God wasn't punishing Jesus on the cross. He was punishing and condemning sin through the sacrifice of Jesus as a sin offering. Big difference. And neither will he punish you 
or punish your sin that's in you by making you suffer. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says this, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, the sacrifice is completed. The punishment for our sins is over and done. Thank you, Jesus. I will leave you today with two scriptures to encourage you, to give you hope in the face of any and all suffering you will go through. The first of these we've already talked about, but it must be repeated once again because of its importance. The other one is new for today, but just as powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Everyone, again, say this with me. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And please remember, any suffering of yours is a time of need and therefore important to our Heavenly Father. Finally, listen to and obey what the Word says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, where it tells us to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. We are His children. And so then, the objects of His personal care. And as such, we are to bring all our anxieties to Him so that He may help us. Amen? If we are able to follow these instructions from the Word of God, we will be and we will remain victorious over all our sufferings. One final scripture tells us this. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, no matter how big or how small or how many our sufferings are or seem to be, or how long they last, we can and we will reign over them in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.